For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how the diverse music of this region was represented in a showcase of artists from 50 states assembled by the Kennedy Center. Adiba Nelson shares Black in America, a lived experience. And the first story in a series from contributing producer Laura Markowitz, looking at the journeys that some youth must take in search of their gender identity. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Arts Across America is a new series of live online performances presented by the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. It aims to showcase the diversity of artistic communities around the U.S. and the visionary artists who invigorate them. Tucson-based musician Brian Lopez was chosen by the Kennedy Center to represent our state, and they asked him to nominate two other artists to contribute online performances. Next, Elisa Ivanitskaya speaks to Brian Lopez about what he felt was most important to share about this region's unique musical landscape. The Kennedy Center was looking for some positivity to come from, from all the divisiveness, and for me it was an honor. And they asked me to curate it as well, so to be able to pick a couple artists that I thought represented uh, various communities throughout Arizona that might be underrepresented normally and give those voices a platform through music, uh, advocating for social justice through music, or just having a different perspective and being able to do that through music. I thought that was uh, something that I could definitely handle and something that I was very happy to have the autonomy to curate. It's the do we believe that I clawed from my chest Placed around your neck Swallowed your trove Now to spoil my guy And it's you that will walk You'll never survive the fall From my power to your Please tell me about Mattel. First of all, she's really talented. She's very young and hasn't been around a lot, and that was even more of a reason to ask if she wanted to do it and possibly give her a platform. She has a very unique perspective and artistry to her, and I'm really grateful that she uh, decided to go along with it. I need to create space for the black community. I, I'm not black. I don't know what it's like to be black in America. And that may sound like a very obvious thing to say, but for me it is being aware that there are social injustices. And to have somebody like Matea, her perspective, that was really important for me to have in this show. There is a black community in Arizona, and it needs to be represented when the Kennedy Center asks for me to put together what I consider a sonic thread of Arizona fabric. And I feel like Matea's voice and the, her youth as well, it was really inspiring for me. And also she was able to tell us a side of the story that I, growing up as a Latino in the U.S., I don't have that perspective. And it's important for everybody to 
to receive that. So Los Espliffs, the style of music that they play is quite rich here in southern Arizona, especially psychedelic cumbia. You hear a lot of those bands and just to have Latin culture represented in some facet, especially such a fun band like them with all that energy and a unique perspective on the cumbia. So you have this Latin element that, again, I'm not really representing in my solo set, and they bring it authentically with their music. How did you approach to choosing which songs to play? There was a a narrative of togetherness and love and light in a very dark time that I wanted to weave throughout the set as well. I wanted to not be too overbearingly political, but at the same time make a profound statement with the songs themselves and just a few chosen words here and there. And now these empty streets that once knew crowded lights have cast their shadows at your door. In spite my sputtered wings, my flightly muttered lines, that faded ghost comes back for more. Was it someone like me? Someone like me? You're looking for... Being a, a touring musician and touring all across the country, seeing at least 48 out of all the 50 states in the United States and definitely touring across to Europe. And the idea is that though maybe at face value we may seem like we have very, very different points of view, perspectives, politics. At the foundation, we all really fundamentally care about the same things. We all cry when a family member passes away. We all have a profound amount of joy and happiness when our first child is born. We are all the same, and that's something right now during these very tough and divisive times. And I think I just wanted to weave that message throughout the set. Nothing can stop the power of a committed and determined people to make a difference in our society. Why? Because human beings are the most dynamic link to the divine on this planet. You close your set with uh, the song, I Pray for Rain. You devoted it to John Lewis. Why did you choose him as your inspiration? You know, obviously it's very a very timely quote from a from an inspirational figure in the civil rights movement. And that's something that we're going through right now in this country that we continue to go through. And we've, we've dug really deep in these past couple months. And it, it looks really ugly, maybe from the outset, but real work is being done. And it's important to remember some of the people that came before and laid the groundwork for where we're at now. And it was just an homage to John Lewis and just in the spirit of what what he believed in, I thought that song kind of resonated true with, with that quote. And though I'm in the dark, you still reach out to me with your good hand. You 
still reach out to me with your good hand. You write songs and you just kind of leave them in the ether and it's not really up to you to determine if they take on a life of their own. Many songs, most of them kind of get lost throughout the years, but that song, for whatever reason, the public has latched onto and I would just like to say that that was a thunderclap that just happened right now outside of my house. It's funny that we're talking about I pray for rain. And there's lightning and thunder that just happened. Kiss me like a virus and taste my languid tongue. Artists, musicians, entertainment industry were the, the first industry to really shut down, and in the U.S. at least, and that was during South by Southwest. And I know because I was supposed to play South by Southwest, and that got canceled. And then slowly my summer touring got canceled in Europe, and then slowly we realized we were going to have to cancel everything for the whole year. It's scary for us because we're also the last industry that will probably come back. So even if you're closing stuff down, working at a restaurant or, or teachers, at some point you're probably going to come back before the music industry. And it's not to say that the music industry doesn't want to perform or go out. Of course we do. We thrive on performance and we need that joy and to bring joy to others. But in the global pandemic, there is no public trust that it is safe. I don't feel like people should go to see shows when they don't feel safe and I just don't know when that mentality will change to a point where we will have shows on a regular basis at uh, at capacity. It could be like three years for the music industry, and that's very scary to think about. So I try not to think about it. <laughs> Elisa Ivanitskaya interviewed Brian Lopez about arts across America. You can find videos of all the past and upcoming performances at kennedycenter.org. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author and activist. She returns to the show next with an essay called Black in America, a lived experience. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. According to research from the Urban Institute, I'm not supposed to be here. According to the statistics, 75.4% of Black children are poor at some point during childhood. Only 64% of those Black children actually complete high school, but that number dips to 52% if they were raised by a single mom. Given all those numbers and so many more, 
Statistically, I should not have the life I have today. But here I am. I was raised by a single mother who saw firsthand how Black people were treated in this country when her Puerto Rican mother rejected my Black father. There were various reasons, but near the top of that list, he was Black. My mother also saw how Black children were treated by this country when that same Black man, my father, kidnapped me and the police failed to open an investigation. Instead, they let the case get buried in a stack of files on another officer's desk. It wasn't until a Black detective accidentally found my file while looking for something else that a case was opened and my mother was able to get me back. But I was gone for three months in the hands of a man with a documented violent history. Being Black has always meant less in the eyes of this country, and for Black people, it has always meant we had to do more, give more, be more. Even right now, I'm giving you more of myself, even though I, as a Black person in this country, am currently mourning and grieving with the rest of Black America. Being Black has always meant I had to work harder in school because the underlying belief was that Black people were not as smart or as capable as our white counterparts, so only A's and B's were accepted in my home. Being Black meant I wasn't allowed to speak slang, ever, because the underlying belief was that speaking African-American vernacular English, also known as AAVE or Ebonics, in public made you sound uneducated and would close doors to opportunities opportunities that likely were not going to be afforded to me anyway. It meant my hair was always relaxed or in braids because wearing my hair as it grew out of my head was seen as dirty, unkempt, and unprofessional. An afro or a twist out or dreadlocks weren't seen as presentable. And as a lady, but first and foremost as a black person, I had to look the part if I wanted the part. That usually meant assimilating to the dominant white culture. I went along with it because as a child, I didn't know better, and I did what my mama told me to do. It meant keeping my hands at my sides when we went into stores and staying close to my mother at all times, because if Black children were in a store with their hands in their pockets, it was presumed they had stolen something. Being Black meant being 11 years old and sitting at a bus stop, having someone yell the N-word out their window at me, and me eyeing the rifle in the gun rack of their truck window. Being black meant keeping my mouth shut if I wanted to stay alive. That is what being black meant for me as a child. Today, being black means working harder than my white counterparts only to self-publish my children's book about a black disabled child because, quote unquote, people weren't ready for a story about a black girl with a disability. Today, being Black means being told I am so well-spoken, so articulate, so well-versed. Today, being Black also means staying one to two car lengths behind the police car ahead of me for fear that I'll get pulled over for breathing while driving, even though I've done nothing wrong and my tags and insurance are current. It means having to step aside on the sidewalk so I don't get knocked over by the non-Black person walking towards me. It means tipping 25 to 30% in restaurants because somehow, somewhere, a rumor was started that Black folks don't tip well. Being Black means having to choose my words very carefully and watching my tone and volume when verbally expressing myself when angry, 
Otherwise, I will be characterized as an angry black woman. Today, being black means only being able to pull away from a white woman's hand as she reaches out to touch my hair, knowing that if I slap her hand away, I'll be the one going to jail for assault. Today, being black means having white men tell me they've never kissed a black woman before at the end of a date. And today, being black means trying to figure out how to explain to my disabled black daughter why people who look like her and people who look like me are marching in the streets screaming that our lives matter. My daughter would tell you that she loves everyone, but somehow I have to figure out how to explain to her that if she is ever in a situation where the police are involved, she needs to not act on her instinct because she could end up dead. I have to figure out how to quell her sunshine because not doing so could one day cost her life. This is trauma, all of it. I was born with trauma encoded into my DNA and I will take trauma to the grave with me. This is what it's like to be black today. This essay was first published in The Lily, a publication of the Washington Post. It is available at thelily.com. You can also find more from Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. And now the first in a five-part series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people who are finding their gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts who are on the forefront of understanding the full spectrum of human identity. This series was written and recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. Against a backdrop of Supreme Court battles over bathrooms and school board fights about whether to teach gender identity in schools, it's easy for parents of transgender children to feel unprepared to help their kids navigate the world safely. But they can find support from a local parent community that is helping hundreds of Southern Arizona families face the challenges of raising trans and gender non-binary kids. Here is Laura Markowitz with the story. Tucson's Pride Celebration is one of the oldest in the nation. When it started back in 1976, the focus was on sexual orientation. But today, people with a rainbow variety of gender identities also participate, as well as their friends, allies, and family members. My name is Lisette Trujillo, and I facilitate the family support group for the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. Trujillo is the mother of a transgender son, I call it my plot twist. Like I was pregnant and I was told that I was going to have a girl. If you ask him what the worst day in his life was, because I did ask him this, um, he said it was his third birthday and I threw a princess party. She and her husband, Jose Trujillo, noticed that from an early age, their child identified as a boy. I remember him putting on my clothes, wearing my ties and then deepening his boys. And if you look at the pictures, there's a disconnect. What we now know is gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is something that transgender people across the board experience. It's defined as a persistent feeling of distress and discomfort because the bodies they were born into don't match their inner gender identities. When he was eight, his little friend called him him. And the mother corrected my son's friend and said, no, sweetie, she's a girl. 
And his friend looked at us like we were crazy and said, no, he is a him. So I walked my child back to the car and I, and I told him, um, I heard your friend refer to you as him. Is this how you see yourself? And he told me, I know that my body is wrong. But in my insides and in my heart, I'm a boy. I was so afraid of what that meant. Like even my husband and I would have these conversations and he was like, don't. Don't mention it. <laughs> well, what, what, what I was afraid of is what if we cost this? I needed to really get educated. Because one thing is to not be against it, which I wasn't. And another thing is to understand it and explore it. They looked for help and found the family support group at the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. It's a parent community that was started by four mothers who wanted to find resources for their transgender kids and to find support for themselves. And over the last 10 years, we've significantly grown. So we're about 189 parents. We have stock letters to go to the school. We have doctors that support and affirm our children. We have therapists that are trans competent and they'll tell you what sport programs are safe what schools are safe, what schools aren't. Finding those resources and finding those safe pockets is vital. There's also a lot of conversation about coming out. When is it safe? When is it not safe? We slowly came out to family and it wasn't necessarily positive. My mom is here now, four years later, um, but we did have some losses. And because we didn't find parent community until about nine months later, we really didn't know what we were up against. I didn't know what laws protected us. Um, I didn't know if people were gonna try to take away our child because we were loving and affirming. That happens in some states. A lot of the parent communities will say you have to compile a safe folder and safe folders are like folders where you put like doctor's notes, pictures, drawings, things that prove that you're having this gender experience. I was afraid. Luckily in the state of Arizona, we're a little bit more protected. Trujillo says the most important thing for parents of transgender youth is to figure out how to keep their children safe in public spaces. You don't have to disclose to everyone that you're trans. You disclose as you feel it's safe to. Before, even I was guilty of it. I was like this walking wound that was like, I have a transgender child, don't harm me. And like outing him everywhere and realizing that's really not safe and actually no one can tell. A couple comes over to find out about the parent support group. Hi. Hi, welcome. Obviously, you have a trans child. They, yes. they came out last year? The end of July. Okay. And as a parent, I totally knew something was going on. Right. And there's that inner gut feeling of something's not right, and I was just giving him the space at that time just to figure it out. And lots of affirmations and lots of, you know, no matter what, you are going to be loved and supported in this family. Whatever you tell me, it's not going to change anything. And how have you been feeling, like, this last year? I think, like, there was initial relief to know, okay, this is what it's been. Uh, and then there was, like, that sinking feeling my gut. Of fear. Yeah, of, oh, my God, this is what it is, and knowing the kind of world we live in, how at risk that puts him. And, you know, as a parent, what you can do to keep them safe. All the parents that I speak to, the first thing that they will say is, I was afraid. It wasn't that I was afraid that my kid was trans. It was I was deeply afraid that the world was unsafe for my trans child. Yes. And there's a deep feeling of aloneness because parent communities are hidden, but there's thousands of us. And so I just want you to know that we're going to help you and your family.
I don't want you to feel alone. Our whole focus has been helping him get what he needed to get started on his journey. Yeah. Because like for us, it was brand new news and we were adjusting. But for him, he'd been on this journey for years and years yeah. and years. They say that before children come out, like especially in that teen range or that tween, they're researching two to three years before they tell a parent. And so by the time they come out, they're actually asking for help. She says for parents to really be resources for their kids, there's a transition that they have to go through because you don't really understand the experience. So a lot of what happens between the child and the parent is reaction. What parents' communities do is we offer the information needed so that you can better empathize with your child and do all the grieving or any of those things that you may feel like in parent community where it's safe. The journey for parents of transgender kids may seem like uncharted territory, but Lisette and Jose Trujillo say it's really not that different from what every parent goes through. All parents have some expectations for their children, whether conscious or unconscious. And at some point, children become their own people and they choose their own paths. Like a line of politicians in the family, you know, or doctors, and then all of a sudden the kid wants to be an artist, right? And it's like, what? You're going to be poor. So you're going to be poor. It's like How are work. you going to feed yourself? Instead right. of embracing it and being like, okay, let's figure this thing out. Let's, you know. let's give you a paintbrush and oil. Let's, let's help you thrive. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Tune in next week for episode two of Youth Crossing Gender Borders. No parent ever comes in saying, I expected my child to be transgender. I wanted a child with gender dysphoria. All that parents want is their kid to be loved and to be safe and to be accepted. When a preschooler insisted that he was a she, everyone in the family had to adjust their ideas about what gender truly means. Changing expectations, next week on Arizona Spotlight. The music for this series was written and performed by Noah James. For photos and more information about the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.